Welcome to the latest edition of Phil and Lisa Ruin the Movies with me, your host, Lisa Schmeiser, and my lovely and charming co-host, Mr. Philip Michaels. I am both lovely and charming, and my voice is finally recovered from our Members Only episode. <laughs> uh, this is also a promotion for those of you who are not yet members of The Incomparable. We put up a special episode at the beginning of this week that features special guest stars, including Progressive Red Skull and... and um, a- and a delightful moppet yes of undetermined origin who has masterful accent work yes and you know we we know that this is not the the greatest time in the world to be uh uh everybody has signed up for things everybody has a lot on their minds and everybody's prioritizing fairly rigorously Mm -hmm. we do appreciate that you guys have made space in your podcast players and your attention spans for us and this is our way of rewarding you and that's that's really enough yeah that's all you have to do, is just keep downloading this sporadically updated podcast. Well, we're grateful for all of you who do. Mm-hmm. And I want to also point out I'm grateful for, folks, for the folks in the members lack who engage with us. Yeah. Or me, really. You don't show up yeah, in the members no. lack. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> no, they don't pay me enough. I mean... Oh, <laughs> I mean, I have some things going on right now. Yeah, and... yeah it's complicated. Yeah. Anyway, what I want to say is, um, for those of you who are uncomfortable members, there is a Phil and Lisa channel in the members Slack. I do show up and have great discussions with you guys. Um, there are a lot of smart, opinionated people there who give a lot of feedback on movies. It's a delight. And she reads things to me. Yes. Yes, I do. It's true. Mm-hmm. And um, also, we're available on Twitter. I'm at L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. And I'm at J Snell. Uh... <laughs> Twitter. Yeah, well, we'll start there. <laughs> anyway, anyway, this is to say um, thank you all for listening. And uh, we're here to talk about how the premise of this podcast might shift for a little bit, because as you know, it was founded on the idea that we review movies based on the trailers for the upcoming theatrical releases. <laughs> and there's no theaters anymore. No. Movie theaters do not exist. No, um, this this struck me today. Um, as you know, in my day job, or mm-hmm. as you don't know, mm-hmm. you, you know now, uh, I review phones for a living. And one of the ways that we uh, test the screens and the displays of phones is we go and watch trailers on YouTube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we compare that to other phones and we say, oh, the colors on this one are a bit off. Or, or wow, this, it, is, this how, is really bright. And how does today, it sound is the yeah. other one, too. And how does it sound? And today, Lisa got treated to me watching the Cats uh, trailer in stereo. And Five the reason, times. And the reason I was watching the Cats trailer is because I started looking for trailers of upcoming movies. And there ain't none, son. Yeah. I was trying to find Death in the Nile, or um, well, I think th- uh, there was another one in the fall that's coming out, and maybe maybe this trailer exists. No, it doesn't. So I think what this actually points to is uh, let's talk about how this movie has become an invert reflection of some of the forces that were roiling the movie industries to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we may or may not have talked about this, and mm. I may or may not have alluded to this on a previous podcast where I calculated the cost of us to go see Death of Stalin. Yes. And it was in the three figures. But uh, you and I are old enough to remember when movies coming to theaters was an event. And, sure. And then we are also old enough to remember, like, you always had a friend who had HBO. And they were the one where you're like, can I please have a sleepover at your place? Because you'd have movies that premiered on HBO. And a movie premiering on cable was a big deal. But now we're at the point where there are so many different ways to watch movies it's not an event so much. Even before the great quarantining, it seemed like a movie would appear 
in the theaters, and then three weeks later, we'd fire yeah. up the Apple TV, and it would be, reserve this movie now, because it's coming to iTunes. Yes. You're all, but you're in the theater still. Yeah, I mean, for example, you and I tried to go see Knives Out over yeah. over uh, winter break. Yeah. Didn't happen for a couple of reasons. Um, no one needs to know what they are. No. But the point is, it's on Apple TV already. Yeah. And we could watch it there. So what's happening is, I feel like a couple general trends were accelerating anyway. One hopes there will be a place for cinema as a communal event experience. I mean, there's something to be said for tagging into a high energy franchise on opening night when it's a movie that's eagerly anticipated. Um, stuff like that is fun. But what I've noticed is when streaming movies now, I have the opportunity to put together my own movie slates and see things in them that I didn't notice before mm -hmm. and be able to break down what was good or what was questionable about the movies and then, then ask why I didn't notice it earlier. See, the only reason mm -hmm. I go to movies now, honestly, is because, oh, this isn't going to, I'm not going to get the full effect on my TV. Oh, like the Harry Styles in the, in the No Man's Land movie. Yeah, Exactly. I, I know it's not that movie. Totally not that movie. I was just hoping to make you and, drink. And because we don't we don't invest in sound bars or yeah. anything like that, because I'm deaf as a post. Uh, but uh, oh man, no. What I really think is we should get the, the earphones, the headphones. Probably. Yeah. But um, even now, going to movies. When I go to movies and we walk into a theater and there mm -hmm. are other people in the theater, I am disappointed. Well, did we talk about our experience in going to see Singing in the Rain on the Big Screen? We did not because we haven't recorded a podcast since then. Right before the uh, before time, literally, began. literally forty eight hours before Governor Newsom told us all to stay inside, mm -hmm. Philip and I took our daughter to go see Singing in the Rain, showing on the big screen in Alameda Cinema Theater. What you have to know is we are lucky enough to live in a town that has a fully restored Art Deco theater, and so in addition to having a number of tiny, unremarkable modern screens, there's also really big. Um, beautiful, nearly 100-year-old theater that has been just restored to opulent magnificence. Yeah. And once a week, uh, they'll show classic movies. And there's an MC who introduces them. There's trivia around the movies. It's movie buffs. It's a nice time. It's a very nice time. If um, if you are a fan of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh -huh. um, the guy who directed the um, movie in the episode that features uh, rock climbing... Uh -huh. I, I forget. I'm I'm blanking on the movie now. Um, he was an Alameda native, and he did all his premieres at that theater. Yeah, and uh, I, he and he, I I think he was alive for many yeah. years. And so my so point is, great. so my point is, we're really lucky to have this theater. Yeah, exactly. And what's more is, with the old movies that are shown there, the movie ticket price is really reasonable. Like it was seven dollars a head. Yeah, I think Which we is, paid 19 bucks for yeah, three people. Yeah. So you think about it, you get to watch a beautifully restored classic movie in a beautifully restored theater for $7 on mm -hmm. a weeknight. And again, 48 hours before Gavin Newsom told us to stay inside, we took our daughter and went to a comparatively empty theater because much of our island is full of people more sensible than we are. Uh -huh. And we sat with 30 of our fellow cinemaphiles and we watched Singing in the Rain on the big screen. And for me, it was the first time I had seen it on the big screen. Yeah. For you too? Yeah, uh, actually it was. So here is what struck me because I've seen Singing in the Rain probably about 10 times since I've been married to you. Like every time it was on Turner Classic Movies, we'd watch it. I've seen it a bit more, but yeah. Um, One of the things, this is literally the first time it happened to me, I was overwhelmed with the sheer graceful physicality 
of Gene Kelly's dancing. Mm -hmm. Like on my TV, it's nice. On my TV, it's pleasant. You can see why he had the appeal he had. But watching the modern ballet on the big screen was a whole new experience for me because you see the breadth of choreography, the sweep of the vision he had, the mastery of craft that he and Sid Charisse put into it. Yeah. And it's, you can see it on a small screen. If you get a chance to see it on a big screen, you do it because it's one of the times when you're like, wow, the, the, the director really knew how to take advantage of this medium and really had a specific idea for how it should be seen. And, and Stan, and to Singing on the Rain is not shot in a widescreen format yeah. or CinemaScope or any of the, the ones that really take advantage of the, mm -hmm. um, the wider screen. It is, it is in an aspect ratio similar to what you, uh, would get on a, on a, really conventional TV screen. So you're not losing anything there, but boy, Stanley Donnan, who um, directed the non Gene Kelly dancing bits, uh, really does a good job with camera movements. Yeah. I've always thought he was an influence on the Coen brothers. Oh, absolutely. The, the crowd, the crowd scene at the beginning where you have the parade of grotesqueries and exaggerations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean that in the best possible way. What was amazing to me is when I watched that opening, that opening sequence, um, you could really see actors just pop off the screen. Like when Rita Moreno makes an entrance, you're like, Oh my God, a moral mm -hmm. goddess. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. Um, right. So the thing is, is there's still an argument to be made for seeing movies in theaters, but I think what we're also seeing is there an argument is there's also an argument to be made for the kind of DIY cinema experiences people are having now too. Oh, sure. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people who have bought, TVs more recently than we have. Our yeah. TV is like 13 years old, 14 years old at this point. 2016, 20, 2006. Yeah, so 14 years yeah, old. 14 years old. And mm -hmm. a lot of people invest in sound equipment that is of no benefit to me. And mm. what you do in the theater is what you do at home is every bit as advanced is what they can do in theaters Look, these I days. feel like we live in a world where we have to design websites and applications to work across screens that go from an iPhone 5S all the way up to an iMac. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, this is the world we live in where we have to understand that people are accessing the World Wide Web and apps on all different, on all different levels of technology. And with movies, I don't know if it's possible to get there, but I think we do have to acknowledge that people view movies on their phones now and their iPads and their TVs and their screens. And we do have to acknowledge that in this case, the, the delivery mechanism is going to affect your experience. So just know that going into it. Sure. You know? Um, but anyhow, no, yeah. no trailers. No. Yeah. No. So what we thought we'd do instead is we thought this would be a little bit of a grab bag of an episode. Um, we'll talk about something I noticed when I introduced my daughter to the Jurassic Park franchise, like the responsible parent I am. Yep. Really great to, to <laughs> show your nine-year-old the movies about dinosaurs eating people in increasingly grotesque fashion. Um, we only watched two, three movies. Three. Oh, three, three movies. of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then You're trying still... to block out that third movie, aren't you? Well... That was a regrettable choice. Well, why don't we talk about that? Oh, sure, sure. So... We thought, I thought, okay, why don't we try the original Jurassic Park on, okay. on our daughter? Mm -hmm. And the reason I thought it was okay to do that is um, Spielberg actually aims for making family-friendly movies. He really does. Um, and I also think... Everyone loves that family-friendly version movie, uh, Munich. <laughs> all the family gets around and goes, oh, are they going to kill the Nazis now? Uh, 
Philip Michaels, you are <laughs> no, missing I mean, my George, point. Yeah. No, I, it, you're tr- it, it's quite you true. You guys, I'm shutting the house of him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he does make... look. Schindler's List, a rip-roaring uh, rip adventure for the entire family. Um, you know what? You say that, and it is the kind of family movie that you watch with your family, so you can it is have actually. conversations it about is. why this happens. It is. You've shamed and what, me. And what people do. Amistad is just... Same. Okay. Slavery. I'll find one eventually. Yeah, you will. Keep going. Okay. No, nope. you, you, right. you go on. I'll interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, but look, Jurassic Park was meant to be a was meant to be a family blockbuster. It was. So he was aiming it at all ages with the idea that you'd probably drag your dad to see it on Father's Day or whatever. I don't remember the exact date it came out in summer of 1993. I just remember it came out in summer of 1993. Anyway, long story short, I've always really enjoyed that movie. I've enjoyed the dinosaur reveals. I've enjoyed the, the character beats. I've enjoyed the heck out of the raptors. Um. If I were to rank my favorite Spielberg movies, uh-huh. Jaws is number one, oh, yeah, obviously. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, Catch Me If You Can is actually number two. Mm. Lincoln probably third. It would mm. be higher if not for the terrible ending. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought it was the Raptor Act. Yeah. No, when the Raptors come and actually chase Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> as he's the tra- Office. Yes, as he's trying to get the Emancipation Proclamation uh, passed. Yeah. Uh, not so good. But um, Jurassic Park is a top five Spielberg movie. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 bouncy. Yeah, like, and I mean that in a good way. Like it just beat, 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 beat. There's no wasted time in that. No, movie. there's no wasted time. About um, the only thing you'd look at now and go, the the the, the bit about uh, vegetarianism is really yeah. uh, overwrought. Uh. I I find because that was at the point I think that he had kids who yeah. were into vegetarianism. Yeah, and, so that was, and well, so we got very into that. So we watched Jurassic Park, and she loved it. Yeah, um, our daughter, our daughter loved it. Yes, and um, then we blew her mind by saying, "Hey, you know, Doctor Ian Malcolm, he plays the Grandmaster in Thor Ragnarok," and she's all, "No," and we're no like, one ages. And, she, and we're like, time comes for us all. And then we had to watch the Ragnarok. And I, the beginning, I said, oh, you know, the, the play that they do at the beginning, where uh, it's the story of Loki sacrifice, and Matt Damon plays Loki, and the oldest Hemsworth brother actually plays Thor. I was like, Sam Neill, that actor there who plays Odin, I was like, he's Dr. Alan Grant. And she's all, no! Because again, time comes for us all. Um, so she loved Jurassic Park, and she's like, let's see the sequel. And mm-hmm. we watched the sequel, and both of us... This is Jurassic Park 2 with just... Uh, the Lost World, I think it's called? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, no, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> the, what, so, so here's the There's thing. no Sam Neill, no Laura Dern. It's just... Uh, Jeff Goldblum Jeff, and one of his many children. Jeff Goldblum and... Um, and uh, Julianne Moore. Yeah. And Vince Vaughn. And, but and Vince, fetal Vince Vaughn. Yes, larval Vince Vaughn when that was still a thing that was and happening. And Pete Postlewaith. As Pete the, Postlewaith. As, as, as the Great White Hunter. Yeah, who has a change of heart during the movie. Mm-hmm. So Pete Postlethwaite is the redeemable villain. The mm-hmm. corporate CEO dude, who's played by some actor whose name I can't be bothered to look up, is no. the real villain. Who cares? But I, the thing is, I remember watching that movie and being like, me, sequel. But I had enjoyed two things about that movie. And one was the scene where the raptors hunt people in a field of grass. Because the overhead view where you see the raptors um, separating to move in was really striking visual imagery. And then I just really loved the scene where the T-Rex rampages through San Diego. Um, See, I, um, I've never cottoned to Jurassic Park 2 because yeah. the first movie makes great use of practical effects because the yes. CGI wasn't quite there. No, they, had the, they, they did so many puppets. Yeah. 
And whereas uh, in the second movie... They began to experiment more. There was more with CGI and the raptors looked so fake and phony. Well, not just that. Like The the movie suffers from sequelitis in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading through the trivia while we were watching the movie. And one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the trivia on IMDb is... um, Spielberg was like, we kept getting feedback that people had to wait too long to see dinosaurs in the first movie. And I thought, then people are dopes. Yeah. Because the great thing about Jurassic Park is it takes you forever to see the dinosaurs so that by the time you finally see them, you're like, oh, oh my gosh. Again, to get back to Jaws, the greatest Steven Spielberg movie. You don't see the shark. You don't see the, you, you only see like the full shark at one point. Yeah. And it's like, oh Christ, that's a big shark. No, like, and the thing is, is the less you see of the monster, the more your mind fills in and you're like, oh, I'm the real monster because my fear. And you would think that Spielberg of all people would know this from his experience with Jaws where the, the shark kept well, breaking down. It. Well, he knew it for Jurassic Park. Yeah. But for Jurassic Park 2, I guess... The, it has it has the air of too many notes. Yeah. Where the student people and, like... Well, and bear yeah. in mind, he was editing he was editing Jurassic Park 2 at the same time he was starting and working on Schindler's List. And my sense is this movie is very much a I will make your big dumb dinosaur sequel because what I really want to do is go make this movie about this incredibly depressing Holocaust I want to make my Holocaust movie. And, and everyone's this, like... Th- th- this will get you off my tits. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. was it. But the th- so anyway, the biggest complaint I had about Jurassic Park 2 is, mm-hmm. oh, it's sequelitis, whatever. It's dumb. Um, yeah. It's dumb. Vince Var- Vince- Vincent Vaughn is larval, which Vince is... Vince Vaughn! Oh, he's just... It's whatever. Yeah. This was the whole, I'm so many, period. And yeah. I was just like, I can't believe we thought you were going to be a long-term actor. Mm-hmm. And um, that was it. And then Beatrix is like, didn't they reboot? This fan, so yeah, they rebooted the franchise, and and now it's Jurassic World. And I said, there's a dude who rides a motorcycle with a raptor squad. And after she composed herself, and she, and also you you could, told her who was the dude, yeah, I was who like, has trained the raptors. I was to, like, Star Lord, Busby Berkeley dance. Numbers. I was like, Star Lord has trained the raptors and rides motorcycles with them. And after she, and, and our daughter's reaction was, ah. Yeah. <laughs> she just couldn't stop laughing, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, we've shown her the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and she thinks of Star-Lord as this big doofus. Yeah. As his meat and proper. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Star-Lord and a raptor squad and motorcycles. And I said, you know, it's spectacularly stupid. Yeah, and... you're you're going to have to take the, the, the wheel on this one, because... I cannot bear Jurassic World. Um, <laughs> I saw about thirty minutes of it, and it, I was tapping out. It just is well. So here, everything here, that because everything that I liked about the original is gone. Is gone. So so here are so Jurassic World is directed by Colin Trevorrow, and um, I think one of one of the biggest differences that you can see between Jurassic Park and Jurassic World is that the whole approach to Jurassic World is everything is loud and dumb and wet and on fire simultaneously like the the whole ethos of the movie is just unthinking spectacle and not like Jurassic Park has anything really deep to say. Even when they try the oh, you know, life, life finds a way nonsense. You, um, you are, you are, you are more concerned with uh, what could you, you could you instead of what what you sh- should do. But, <laughs> no, like but, that's my that's my Jeff Goldblum character. No, like Jurassic Park isn't really isn't really meant to be a message movie. 
but like it's Spielberg and he manages to make it a movie that is thoughtful within a tiny, extremely limited sphere. Sure. Like it starts off with a couple central premises and sees them through to execution. Premise number one, dinosaurs are birds, which was actually a really radical idea back in 1993. Spielberg makes the case for all the way through. Premise number two, these animals can't help being animals and we need to respect nature. Sees mm-hmm. it through all the way through. Mm-hmm. And Jurassic World, the premise is basically, wow, stockholders and corporations will do things for money, but they can't foresee the consequences. Who could have thought? And I'm like, you literally have a whole franchise of films that preceded you that are like consequence, consequence, consequence. Nothing about the existence of Jurassic World makes sense on any level. And then there are just weird, weird story decisions in there. Like Bryce Dallas Howard's whole corporate ball buster thing that they have going on, which is um, a whole other monologue we'll get to in a minute. And then um, the the gender politics are weird and punitive and nobody learns anything from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And it's one of these things where it's a cheap nostalgia trip where, again, everything is, I want to remind you, wet and loud and on fire and bleeding simultaneously. My, my main problem with the movie for, from the like mm-hmm. 30 minutes I could bear to watch yeah. was that it, it seemed to be one of those movies that... Uh, wanted to have its cake and eat it too. Oh, absolutely. Or, or have the raptors eat the cake, as it were. Where, where it's like, oh, everything's so corporate nowadays. And every, well, oh, like there's they all have, these like, the terror. Petting, like, they have a petting zoo where they have all these little animals you can... And I kept thinking, are they going to murder those animals when they get bigger? Because they're too big to be useful in a petting zoo anymore? There's all these commercial tie-ins and so corporate. And I'm all, my, my dude, you're making a Jurassic Park sequel that nobody asked for and there's tie-in merchandise to it yeah. so so well, i went to, the curls jr wants to sell me a uh, well, a, a super-sized uh, dr pepper jurassic park and the cup. thing is is trevor got a lot of goodwill for this movie mm-hmm. and i largely think the reason the goodwill is there is because there's enough there's enough stuff in there to push your nostalgia buttons um from and from how the whole movie is structured to mm-hmm. with with oh there's somebody who loves and respects the dinosaurs you're supposed to see chris pratt's ridiculous character as kind of an kind of like oh if ellen grant weren't such a science wimp um mm-hmm. he's a he's a military guy instead so who and but the ending is clearly ganked from the first Jurassic Park, where, oh, no, the humans are about to be eaten by a monster, but then a bigger monster comes along and they can scamper away. Yay! And I, I kept thinking, it's it's like when you see one of the new Star Wars movies and you're like, oh, cheap pop, cheap, cheap, cheap nostalgia, cheap nostalgia. And frankly, if it's a dinosaur movie, it shouldn't have to rely on residual goodwill from a movie people have memorized through years of cable and streaming. It should mm-hmm. be something new and different. Um what I noticed and what was remarkable to me is a lot of the times we were watching older movies with our daughter. We'll talk, she'll like see a line or see something go on. And we're like, yes, yes. This kind of gender, gender interaction was normalized and it's wrong now, but it wasn't then. So, or yes, yes, this kind of racial interaction or yes, this is kind of stereotype. Like we had to pause Goonies at multiple points. Goonies from 1984, 85. Yeah. 
But uh, Jurassic World is what, 2000? Jur- yeah, Jurassic World was... 15? Yeah. 2016? And the gender dynamics oh are... Oh my god, I mean, horrifying. again... Again, as someone who has watched literally 30 minutes of this movie... And tapped out, yeah. And, and then just went off and did hobbies. Yeah. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it, it's, um, it's really... I don't want to be Johnny Woke film. <laughs> I know I can't enjoy movies unless it takes it. But boy, this is a movie that hates women. Oh, and lets you know it every step. And, and, and lets you and basically goes, dinosaurs hate women. Dinosaurs are right. Dinosaurs are right to destroy. Well, the thing is. is you're every- right to hate those women, Brontosaurus. Even though you're a woman yourself, women on women, crimes are the worst. <laughs> no, well, no, because in the original Jurassic Park, you've got the character Ellie Sattler, who is. She's, the Laura Dern character. And she's attractive. Like, they make no bones about that. You can, you know, you get someone with legs up to her ears as a beautiful blonde. There she is. Um, but the thing is, is she's treated with professional respect by, like, everyone in that movie. And she's competent. And um, from beginning to end, her judgment isn't questioned. She's, she's taken for being, like, a grown-ass professional. And in Jurassic World, you've got Chris Pratt playing this enormous, like, red pill jerk who's constantly <laughs> who's constantly second guessing Bryce Dallas Howard's judgment and frankly anyone should but she's written she's written to be adult yeah she's written to be a dummy you're telling me the head of operations would be like oh it makes complete sense to have this this animal with unknown genetic composition with no we're not going to socialize the animal and we're going to also build a giant ass gate in its pen so it can run out at any time like you would think that 20 years of dinosaurs breaking through fences would have taught people how to build better fences <laughs> and, and like not include gates they could walk through. And yet this is apparently not a thing that this, this master operations person has thought to ask one person in the park, but it goes on like this where she's, she's consistently shocked by what dinosaurs do. And she's a person who runs a dinosaur park. And then <laughs> And that, that would seem to be like uh, one of the uh, requirements on the the, the hiring yeah. list. Are you shocked by what dinosaurs do? Yes, I totally am. I really am. Well, that would seem to disqualify you from this job of uh, administering a park filled with dinosaurs yeah. who do weird, weird shit. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. No, and then there's a there's the other. Uh, there are two other female speaking character parts in this movie one of them is sad divorcing mom who lies to her children constantly in class sure. and that's literally all she does and the other one is bryce dallas howard's hapless assistant who loses the 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 high-spirited boys and for her crimes is punished by being split in half between a mosasaur and a pterodon Mm-hmm. Like they literally toss her body around like a chew toy and they're screaming and they're suffering like no one else in the movie has as gory a death as she does it is just this unbelievably like the gender politics regressed by 40 years over the span of the 20 years between Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. It is unbelievable. It is risible. And I'm watching it with Trix and she's just like, I don't ever want to see this again. No, this she, t- she, she tapped out. She even, tapped uh, out. Uh, Cause sooner than I did. Well, she came back when I was like, look, Raptor squad. And she fell on the ground laughing because watching all the CGI Raptors run around Chris Pratt was genuinely ridiculous. But, you know, it was just, it was amazing to me how something that was meant to amplify and perpetuate all the really cool stuff in the first movie so completely missed the point. Speaking of uh, Risible, 
uh-huh. and laughable. Uh-huh. Do we want to talk about Chris Pratt, who's basically gone from on Parks and Rec, everyone's all, oh, Andy Dwyer, he's so uh, delightful. And, oh, uh, and, we uh, love that doughy dork. Guardians of the Galaxy. Hey, well, you know, he's doing cardio now, apparently. Good for him. And, yeah. And then once you get to the Jurassic Park movies, you're all, screw that guy. He's kind of a jerk, man. Yeah. He's dating, he's married to a Schwarzenegger uh, scion. And, yeah. Uh, He's weird and goofy and fast uh, now, and and he, he divorced that uh, nice lady from the CBS sitcom. We don't we don't know his life and all yeah. that, but I think um, so. I think if you were to break it down, um, there's always that thing that happens when actors get really ripped and stay that way. Oh, sure. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, that makes you. <sighs> What it does is I think it provides a really sharp visual line between actors. They're just like us. There are people who have jobs and movie stars. Their body is their moneymaker and they are not like you anymore. You know, the actor who the, this, this is totally weird, uh-huh. who is totally ruined for me because he tweeted literally a picture of him doing curls at the gym. Who? J.K. Simmons. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. He, he tweeted his, I'm going to get buffered to be Commissioner Gordon. And I'm all, dude, my God, you're J.K. Simmons. I liked it when you, I loved you as a doughy Nazi. You are already <laughs> okay, J.K. Simmons. No one, no one is going, unless J.K. Simmons can, like, crush me like a grape. What I need uh, to say I, is a really shredded septuagenarian. I, really I do is. not, I do not care for his... No, I, I will it, not buy insurance from farmers if uh, if I do not believe he will rip off my head from my uh, thorax. Yeah. <laughs> no, for me it was Kumail Nujani. Oh, sure. Um, oh, oh, God, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I wish you guys could see the look on Phil's face. Oh. When he just were... And the thing is, I've read the interviews with him, and I get why he's now become incredibly shredded, because he wants to he wants to be a plausible south asian superhero he's the first one in the marvel franchise the representation's important he wants to make sure it's a strong start i can respect that it's still one of those things where you're like huh well enjoy your life in the land of never eating bread again um mm. yeah and um i think that's the thing with chris pratt is he went from being somewhere like oh you've got some nice comic timing you're like and, me chris pratt well, no we never th- i never thought that but it was mm. basically oh he's a he's an actor with comic timing and he can bring he can bring some a little something some little a little pathos to a role mm-hmm. like his first guardians of the galaxy turn is legit good yeah i agree it's charming and fun and the moment where he argues with rocket and rocket's like why should i save the universe what has it ever done and and starboard screams because i'm one of the dummies who lives in it like that's just a great moment because it's exasperation and humor and absurdity all at once and i have to say he had some good moments in the avengers endgame where during one of the time travel sequences, they redo the opening sequence from Guardians, the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, where in that sequence, as directed by James Gunn, it's Star-Lord dancing to come and get your love and um, lip syncing. And it's fun and cool and reverent. And it just 
you know, it announced the movie, right? And in the Avengers movie, you get like a whole different take where the dancing is awkward and jerky and dorky and he's singing off key. And I thought, okay, there's still the actor in there who's willing to do the the, the work of vulnerability to advance the story. And I have to say one of my favorite co-stars from Moneyball. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was great in Moneyball. Yeah. But like the thing is in the Jurassic Park movies you don't get that. You just get oh he's he's a he's a he's a turkey. No, he's a he's a putz. Yeah. Meh. Don't 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 like So anyway, the point is I wouldn't have had a chance to do that little comparison and contrast with the Jurassic Park movies. I wouldn't have been able to compress twenty years of Mendrick dinosaurs down into a weekend of huh, well that's dismaying. If it hadn't been for like the power of streaming cinema. Yep. Sure. So we had that. Um, so what have, what else have we been watching? What else have we been watching? Um, unfortunately, I've been reading a lot. No books, the enemy of movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe someone should do a movie about that. Well, wait, uh, no, wait. we've oh, been... we started watching Charade with Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, I which find... is quite good. It's very good. Which is quite good. I I wish they could update it from modern times. I would love to see updated from modern times. Where that where where she's more of her own agent and less. Uh, oh, I love you. Even though I met you twenty seeds ago, and you're. Uh, a liar. So here's what I do love about that movie mm-hmm. is Cary Grant is 29 years older than Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And he was acutely conscious of looking much older than she was. And he's like, this is going to read as creepy and gross on screen. I don't want to have her as a love interest. I'm, I'm terribly uncomfortable. And so the screenwriters worked with him to say, okay, why don't we incorporate some scenes where you put this out on the table and where she decides it's okay and you acknowledge it and you move on. And the reason I like that so much is because you compare that with Funny Face, which we rewatched with our daughter recently. And Fred Astaire is so much older than Audrey Hepburn and it's just so creepy. It never stops being creepy. I think we need to actually discuss the fact that Audrey Hepburn's entire career has been spent with leading men who are much older than her. Humphrey and, um, Bogart in Sabrina. Humphrey Bogart in Sabrina. Yes. Rex Harrison in, in My, My Fair, Fair Lady. Lady. Yeah. Gregory Peck in Roman Holiday. It would it, be like having Mila Kunis playing against, um, oh, shredded J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, it, wow. I think I just unnerved myself. It, <laughs> basically, if... um. Audrey Hepburn in uh, 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 After Dark. Yeah, uh, Wait Until Dark. Wait Until Dark. Instead of Alan Arkin, it's like uh, a much older Arkin. It's her, well. Like Alan Arkin's dad is all, hey, you're kind of cute. And then you'd be all, oh, God. No. And granted, from what I understand, Audrey Hepburn was a delight to work with. She was. So... I'm guessing that maybe one of the reasons that they always had her playing is because she was one of, she, she could go toe to toe with these guys, both in professionalism and in a sense of innate dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she brings that to every, there's, there's always a certain um, quality of contained dignity in her roles, mm-hmm. which I love even in funny face. Um, and this is why in breakfast at Tiffany's, one of the things I find disorienting about that movie is George Pappard seems so callow. When, yeah. he, when he plays off her. I realize we're supposed to be like, oh, it's a love story. And, and, and ironically, that's yeah. the first love story where 
her leading man is like at least remotely it, in the at same least, decade. At least is. a par four away from her age. Yeah, but he seems so callow. Yeah. So I think that it might have been a great way to solve not solve, but how do you how do you bring out the best in Audrey Hepburn? And yeah. the answer is you put her up against people who have the maturity to go toe to toe with her. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So the other thing we've been watching. The other thing we've oh gosh. You're dancing around this. I am. I'm embarrassed. Is the Disney wedding show on Disney Plus. We have Disney Plus now. Yeah. Um, no apologies. It's, no, it's because a great we, 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 own a, we own a child. <laughs> we own. That's the uh that's, that's the... a legal term. <laughs> oh my gosh. Someone's gonna come knocking on the hello, we understand you own a child. <laughs> um no, we have we have a child and um we don't have cable. So we yeah. we have Disney Plus. And oh, at night, there was one night where we had spent the day, like, becoming para-educators, which is what we do now, in addition to the day job. Mm-hmm. And um, Phil sits down. He's like, what do you want to watch? And I was like, literally nothing that makes me think or engages my critical faculties. And the joke is on me, because one, those faculties never go offline. Mm-hmm. And two, we ended up watching Disney Weddings, which is apparently a series that aired on the Disney Channel. Yes. And the premise behind this series is these two people who met on some dance show that's also owned by Disney and ABC now host um, a documentary-style reality show wherein two couples bring you into like their, their, their Disney wedding, where, whether it's a flash mob proposal at Disney World or it's um, getting married at like 2 a.m. in front of the castle because you wanted to turn pink. Um, the point is, is every episode has these two couples. The couples are always gaga about Disney. Like they'll have like rooms in their house dedicated to they Disney. They wear Disney shirts and, and uh, like, have Disney merchandise. And they're the like, background. we want that Disney magic on our wedding day. Mm-hmm. And like the thing I love watching about this is I love trying to figure out the logistics. Like Walt, Di- like Disney as a company fascinates me. Because they so thoroughly own the vertical. They own everything from the consumer end experience to everything that feeds into that experience. And it's just this comprehensive, seamless um, journey that they take consumers through. And that level of control and meticulous detail is fascinating and, and admirable. And I love learning about it. I think our favorite episode as a family yes. was, the, um, <laughs> was the couple uh-huh. who... We're not getting married, or not doing a proposal. No, but had already been married, and we're celebrating their d- 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 year anniversary. One year anniversary. One year anniversary, and they were all, "Oh, Disney weddings! Please so, make so." It, one of the spouses make it special. One of the spouses reaches out to the show into Disney weddings, and they're like, "I really want to surprise my husband, so I'm going to take him down to Disney World." But that's not the surprise. The surprise is that I'm going to take him to Broadway, and I want to take him to go see Frozen because that's his favorite musical. And then we want to meet and greet with the cast, and they got it, and. Oh, we just, as the three of us, just kept saying, this is to celebrate being legally married for 12 months. One year! One year. I mean, not to not to tell tales out of school. Uh-huh. You know, we, we you and I are going to be married 20 years. In August, yeah. This year. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where is Disney uh, kissing our asses? <laughs> where is, uh... Our own daughter says, I have underwear older than when no, those two have been married. No, what she said, and I'm going to remember this forever because I couldn't stop laughing, was, <laughs> I have underwear that's a, that's 
more than a year old. Where is the party for my underpants? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was them, and I honestly don't remember the other couple. Because... It was also a legitimately uh, a couple that made us angry. Oh wait, was that the couple that had Olivia Newton-John singing at their Yeah, uh, no, it was the 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 uh, western, the country. Western. Oh God, yes, them. Oh, Chinless Wonder Western singer. Okay. Oh, so it might have. It actually might know. have been Olivia Newton-John. Anyway, the point is, anyhow, the point is that everyone who appears on Disney weddings is awful. No, no, I no. Actually, things. that's not true. No, so the thing. There was a lovely couple. No, what I say, uh, what, I say, what, what, I, we... what I say to Phil every time we watch this is, I want to love something as much as any of these people love Disney on any given day. Yeah. Like, it is just astounding to me how, how so much of their emotional fulfillment is tied up in the belief that Disney is this unique and magical place. And in order to bring that into their own lives, they need to have, like, the brand involvement. Like, I just find that so interesting. And that Disney has to be either worked into their vows or that they have to have romantic moments they with really Disney did, stuff in the background. They really did work Disney into the vows in some of these shows. Yeah. Um, but the other... So so we watch this. And again, I love watching the wedding professionals because you're talking about a group of people whose job it is to mitigate the expectations of folks and break it to them what the budgetary thing is going to be on this. <laughs> Because it's not going to be cheap to get married in front of a castle when the rest of the park is closed. Yes, and because and you, you either have to do the weddings in the park itself at either the crack of dawn yeah. or at uh, the stroke of midnight. And because... your photos are often separate from your weddings. Um, I know somebody who did have a Disney wedding. Mm -hmm. And they had the photos the day after the wedding. And they had the photos at like 4 a.m. Yeah. And again, for me... Mm-hmm. It's not the choice I would make. No. But for these folks, it was worth it. And again, I like seeing what they do behind the scenes. I like seeing the options that are available. I like imagining the creativity that goes into to, to saying, okay, we're going to figure out how to laser print photos of the ceremony onto the cake so that when these people literally go from like the, the Epcot Pavilion over to the reception hall, the photos of the vows they just took are already on their cake. Like they do that. And yeah. I find that amazing. See, to me, mm -hmm. and this is uh, my imp of the perverse, mm -hmm. I think a better show would be uh, where married couples, you have a bridezilla who demands, or a, groom or a groomzilla. You have, a, you have, a, you you have know. someone in the wedding party who demands this uh, undeliverable task. And I want to be married in front of the Tree of Life by a real live Pandoran shaman. Yes. Or I... I, 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 I I wish to be married on the Pirates of the Caribbean, and the officiant is the guy who says, Dead men tell no tales. Yeah. I, I would love that. And it's basically... Could the you marry us on the Haunted Mansion and make sure it's in the room with all the spinning all the spinning ghosts? And I want the ghosts to do the thriller dance for me as I come in with the, the DJ announcing me as Man in Life. Right, and the challenge is, can the Disney wedding people pull that off? Or... Mm -hmm. Do they have to give... Okay, you get a lifetime pass to Disney. We couldn't uh, mm -hmm. deliver your weird-ass thing. I want a wedding where all the living former CEOs of Disney are the flower girls. <laughs> Robert Iger and Michael Eisner are holding hands. <laughs> Walking and, down. And throwing flowers in my path. Yes. What is wrong with that? I want a wedding where an actual cybernetic raccoon with the voice of Bradley Cooper is the efficient at my vows. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> I want a wedding where an evil witch gives my attendants the, the ability to have legs instead of fishtails. I want a wedding mm-hmm. where all the Toy Story characters attend, but, but they are an actual Toy Story scale. <laughs> like and Dang. if we look at them, they fall down dead like they're toys. Because they, 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 people look at them, they're not, they're not alive. <laughs> I want a wedding where a robot picks up all the trash. <laughs> I want a wedding where an angry old man attaches dozens of balloons uh-huh. to a house and we float away and that's how we leave for the reception. I want a wedding where everyone <laughs> cries <laughs> and then rats cook me dinner. <laughs> Actual-, Actual rats, not not make-believe rats, not men in rat costumes, rats. And it had better be good food. You had promised me rats, Disney. And the food had better be good. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to be married on the star, the the, the uh, space mountain, uh-huh. and um, I'm ground. floating in space. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, everyone is whirling around in space, and uh, if they hit by a meteor, they die. Uh, I want to get married. I want to get married on Star Tours, and uh-huh. it better be the iteration of Star Tours where Oscar Isaac is speaking French. Well, sure, uh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, wouldn't really. Well, sure. <laughs> I want to get married. <laughs> uh huh. At Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, mm-hmm. and then a train comes and runs over half of the people in my wedding party. Oh, what about the? Does the rest of them go to hell like they do at Mr. Toad's yeah, Wild Ride? Huh? Oh my god! Absolutely, because they're all. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> I want to get married in Peter Pan. Uh-huh. And it had better be the part where we're all flying above London. And that, not that the part where we're asexual. And, uh, <laughs> Everybody is de-aged to 11. <laughs> I want him to get married in It's a Small World, and all the It's a Small World uh, uh, robots are wearing things that fit in with my bridal party designs. And, 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 <laughs> the people in my bridal party look like the uh, look like the little robots and have, have surgery to make them look like that. There is just one moon at a golden yep. sun. And I do, I do with everyone. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think I think actually a better Pirates of the Caribbean one is I want to be married in a Pirates of the Caribbean theme wedding, where it's underwater and the efficient is the antagonist Davy Jones. is Davy Jones yep. with the tentacles. <laughs> I want a wedding where my vows are we wants the redhead. <laughs> Even though my wife is blonde. Oh, no! That was going to be my vow renewal to you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Yes, I want a wedding where Pete's Dragon shows up. So work on that Twitch and Allison. Yeah. The now, hosts of Disney Weddings. No, I think what it's... What, again, um, it's family-friendly in the sense that you can watch it with your kid. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Unless you're us, well, in which case we poisoned our daughter against the, the idea of normal love. So the thing that I actually, and you know, this brings us to Disney Plus. One of the things we watched the series and the Imagineers, mm-hmm. and we're watching this now. And one of the things that I think persistently fascinates me about the Disney reality series is I just love seeing how that company operates. And um, I'm reasonably sure that all of the shows that they're letting out onto the service, someone goes through and goes, okay, 
how does this make us look? Is this going to be something that some dissident shareholder brings up later? Um, <laughs> but I just find it really fascinating that the image they're choosing to construct over the streaming service is one of these, we love making magic happen. We think of nothing but how to delight you and make you think of a magical life. And, um, you know, I, it is too early to tell whether or not our daughter is going to come in one day and say, mother, father, I want to get married in that hydroponic exhibit in Epcot. And I'm going to say my vows by that giant tomato vine that probably looks like a tree. Mother, father, I want you to be married in each of the country pavilions mm-hmm. at Epcot Center. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I decide which of the eight men I truly love. <laughs> the others are ritually executed. But... <laughs> I mean, maybe she'll want a Disney wedding. I don't know. Yeah, Um, who knows? But the thing is, it's been interesting to watch this kind of programming because it's well outside our normal normal viewing. And um, it's always good, I think, to push yourself a little bit and learn a whole new visual vocabulary and a whole new set of storytelling conventions. And like I said, I want to love anything as much as any of these people really love Disney World. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, It's interesting. Lisa, what have you been watching recently? Oh my gosh. Um that's a great question. Um and you I recently watched that um show from Britain which was a lot like Space only not Space. Oh, that's right. Um like buzzed or drunk oh. or stoned or what what the hell was the name of that show? <laughs> I was so close smashed, I think it's smashed, called. yes. Yeah. And it was one season. One season, six episodes. So it's like the longest running show in British history. One season, six episodes. It's effectively a Gen X, not Gen X, Gen Z version of space. Yeah. And it's a blatant homage. Um, It has somebody who's like the love child of Nick Frost and James Corden is your ostensible protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the chemistry between the cast is snappy and funny. Uh, Sean Bean shows up as the spirit animal of... The character who is, again, the love child of uh, Nick Frost and uh, James Corden. And Sean Bean appears to be having a good time, which is nice. Yeah. And it was... He should, and it's one of the few shows he doesn't die in, like, the the first couple episodes. No, and it was a nice... It was a nice evening spent. Yeah. Um, I like the shows that are fast and funny like that. Yeah. Um, You know, low commit... I don't really feel up to uh, getting overly involved in anything that... uh, Anything that's, oh, God, do I have to? Like, I can remember when we watched The Wire, we actually had charts after a while to keep track of who was where. A lot of vomiting in that show, if I'm if not I'm the wire. The, no. Not The Wire. Um, yeah. Smashed, I think it's called? Smashed. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's we'll on, look it up. It's on Hulu. With It'll be correct in the notes. Um, one of the peculiar side effects of having nothing but streaming is because there is such a surfeit of content. Um. I find it really easy to just drop out of watching anything if I'm not riveted in like the first 15 minutes. Though. That's quite true. And um, that is to the, de- to the detriment of slower moving shows. Like it's kind of a miracle that I got hooked on Ozarks when I was watching that because mm-hmm. that's a show that definitely takes a little while to get going. But that's what I've been watching. And I've been in the room while you were watching things like you were watching the original Thomas crown affair. Yeah. So I've been watching a lot of Norman Jewison movies. Yeah, he's, he's your guy. He, I mean, I wouldn't say that he's one of the, the greatest directors, but mm-hmm. he's certainly on that B list of people who just turn in a solid movie. He performs consistently. Yeah. Like it's not Quicksilver and it's not, you know, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. But like, 
I feel the same way I feel about Sidney Lumet, where I'm like, okay, with the, you know, with anything Sidney Lumet does, you you know, it's gonna be okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, take the Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah. Which, on the one hand, is basically <laughs> Steve McQueen going, "I'm a doctor and a lawyer, and I can fly." And I was like, "Sure, sure, you are, Steve. You're uh-huh. you're you're a talent." But it's got some really clever. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Uh, framing work on the capers in uh-huh. particular, yeah. and so it's 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 quite enjoyable in that sense. Uh, we loved direct... we, we liked Semi No Flowers, which is funny. Yes, that was one of his early movies, which yeah. is great. And mm-hmm. Paul Lynn steals the show. Yeah. Um, he does In the Heat of the Night, which mm-hmm. is still a very uh, yeah. relevant and enjoyable movie. He does Fiddler on the Rope. He of... did two. Well, I think what's interesting. He did about two him. great. He did two musicals at the back time. To back musicals were dying. And he did two back-to-back, and what's more is they're very, like, they don't feel, they feel like Norman Jewison movies in that they're good, yeah, and they're expertly shot, and um, he does his best to depict people's inner lives through visual metaphors, yeah. but they they still feel like distinctly different movies. Like, you're never going to confuse a scene in Jesus Christ Superstar for a scene in Fiddler on the Roof. Absolutely not. And, um... And not just because there's hippies in one and peasants <laughs> and peasants in the other, um, but the the fact that he could switch gears like that and understood understand what makes each one um, a reflection of a really specific period mm-hmm. is a sign of talent. And then you know you get to the eighties and he's, you got your Moonstruck, you, you got Agnes of God, and in, you also have In Country, which it looks, a soldier story mm-hmm. was uh, really good, yeah, actually, and. Um, of course, you and I saw The Hurricane, which... Uh, I think we're still watching The Hurricane. Yeah, that, I think that, it's long. That, that, oh, that, God. That's a less effective movie. It's so long. It is very long. I think we're still watching it. Yeah. Oh, Anyhow. But yeah, Norman Jewison. You've been watching him, yeah. He's a he's a fine director. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just downloaded uh, an Easter tradition for us. Apple currently has The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston on sale. Yeah. And <laughs> back when we had cable and a DVR, we would, of course, record it every year off TCM. No, and, ABC. Or, well, either one. Yeah. Because we got it both with commercials and with that. And we would, of course, watch it because uh, Yul Brenner is a delight in it, mm-hmm. as is Ann Baxter as Never Terry. And um, with her with her name change because, because Cecil B. DeMille didn't want young men tittering at Nefertiti. Yes. Yes. I mean, he could have used a whole bunch of other names for her. He could have. But anyway, she's old Nefertiri, the, the scheming temptress of the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, the you, got, t- you got your Yvonne DiCarlo, you got your Edward G. Robinson. You Edward got your, G. Robinson, see. <laughs> you got your, your Vincent Price. Oh, Vincent Price is my favorite in that. So mm-hmm. anyway, we're looking forward to watching that after we finish this podcast. Yep. So yeah. um, I think that's a mm-hmm. good sign to wrap it up. I think it is. So Vincent Price is calling me. Yeah, so of course. Um, when Vincent Price is calling, we must go. Uh, what I'd love to do is have you guys reach out on Twitter and tell us what you've been watching. Have And reach out in the member Slack. Tell us what you've been watching, why you've been watching it. What compels you to keep watching if you're on any sort of thematic spree? What's compelling you to give up things if you're not watching them all the way through? And We'd if there, love if, to know. If there are movies you've been watching, let us know because we, uh, we can watch those and talk about them. We'd love that. Mm-hmm. All right. So once again, thanks for listening. I am Lisa Schmeiser of Film Lisa Run the Movies. I am also Lisa. No, I'm I'm the other one. 
He's the one who wants to have the wedding in the It's a Small World exhibit. Exactly. That's Philip Michaels for you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>